Whisperer. I'm Isa, and we have three nights left till Halloween as we continue the story of Dracula. We last left off in London, where Dr. Van Helsing and friends have been treating Lucy up till her and her mother's mysterious death. Mina and Jonathan are coping with their own death of Jonathan's business partner, and Dracula, still undetected, is taking in the local sights. So adorn your room with garlic, roll up your sleeve for a blood transfusion to save your friend's life, and let's keep going. solicitor and had written to him. All the poor 
you, friend John. I am free, and if I may, my service is to you. Have you got what you looked for? I asked, to which he replied. I did not look for any specific thing. I only hoped to find, and find I have, all that there was. Only some letters, and a few memoranda, and a diary new begun. But I have them here, and we shall, for the present, say nothing of them. I shall see that poor lad tomorrow evening, and, with his sanction, I shall use some. When we had finished the work in hand, he said to me, And now, friend John, I think we may to bed. We want sleep, both you and I, and rest to recuperate. Tomorrow we shall have much to do, but for the tonight there is no need of us, alas. Before turning in, we went to look at poor Lucy. The undertaker had certainly done his work well, for the room was turned into a small chapelle ardent. There was a wilderness of beautiful white flowers, and death was made as little repulsive as might be. The end of the winding sheet was laid over the face. When the professor bent over and turned it gently back, we both started at the beauty before us, the tall wax candles showing a sufficient light to note it well. All Lucy's loveliness had come back to her in death, and the hours that had passed, instead of leaving traces of decay's effacing fingers, had but restored the beauty of life, till positively I could not believe my eyes that I was looking at a corpse. The professor looked sternly grave. He had not loved her as I had, and there was no need for tears in his eyes. He said to me, Remain till I return, and left the room. He came back with a handful of wild garlic from the box, waiting in the hall, which had not been opened, and placed the flowers amongst the others on and around the bed. Then he took from his neck, inside his collar, a little golden crucifix, and placed it over the mouth. He restored the sheet to its place, and we came away. I was undressing in my own room when, with a premonitory tap at the door, he, he entered and at once began to speak. Tomorrow I want you to bring me, before night, a set of post-mortem knives. Must we make an autopsy? I asked. Yes and no. I want to operate, but not as you think. Let me tell you now, but not a word to another. I want to cut off her head and take out her heart. Ah, you a surgeon, and so shocked. You who I have seen with no tremble of hand or heart do operations of life and death that make the rest shudder. Oh, but I must not forget, my dear friend John, that you loved her, and I have not forgotten it, for it is I that shall operate, and you must only help. I would like to do it tonight, but for Arthur I must not. He will be free after his father's funeral tomorrow, and he will want to see her, to see it. Then, when she is coffined ready for the next day, 
You and I shall come when all sleep. We shall unscrew the coffin lid, and shall do our operation, and then replace all, so that none know, save we alone. But why do it at all? The girl is dead. Why mutilate our poor body without need? And if there is no necessity for post-mortem and nothing to gain by it, no good to her, to us, to science, to human knowledge, why do it? Without such it is monstrous. For answer, he put his hand on my shoulder and said with infinite tenderness, Friend John, I pity your poor bleeding heart, and I love you the more because it does so bleed. If I could, I would take on myself the burden that you do bear. But there are things that you know not, but that you shall know, and bless me for knowing though they are not pleasant things. John, my child, you have been my friend now many years, and yet, did you ever know me to do any without good cause? I may err, I am but man, but I believe in all I do. Was it not for these causes that you send for me when the great trouble came? Yes, were you not amazed, nay, horrified, when I would not let Arthur kiss his love, though she was dying, and snatched him away by all my strength. Yes. And yet, you saw how she thanked me, with her so beautiful dying eyes, her voice too, so weak, and she kissed my ruffled hand and blessed me. Yes. And did you not hear me swear, promised her, that so she closed her eyes grateful? Yes. reason now for all I want to do. You have for many years trust me. You have believed me weeks past, when there be things so strange that you might have well doubt. Believe me yet a little, friend John. If you trust me not, then I must tell what I think, and that is not perhaps well. And if I work, as work I shall, no matter trust or no trust, without my friend trust in me, I work with heavy heart and feel, oh, so lonely when I want all help and courage, that may be. He paused a moment and went on solemnly. Friend John, there are strange and terrible days before us. Let us not be two, but one, so that we work to a good end. Will you not have faith in me? I took his hand and promised him. I held my door open as he went away, and watched him go into his room and close the door. As I stood without moving, I saw one of the maids pass silently along the passage. She had her back towards me, so did not see me, and go into the room where Lucy lay. The sight touched me. Devotion is so rare, and we are so grateful to those who show it, unasked those we love. Here was a poor girl putting aside the terrors which she naturally had of death, to go watch alone by the bier of the mistress, whom she loved, so that the poor clay might not be lonely, till laid to eternal rest. I must have slept long and soundly, for it was broad daylight when Van Helsing waked me by coming into my room. He came over to my bedside and said, 
You need not trouble about the knives. He shall not do it. Why not, I asked, for a solemnity of the night before had greatly impressed me. Because, he said sternly, it is too late, or too early. See? Here he held up the little golden crucifix. This was stolen in the night. How stolen, I asked in wonder, since you have it now. Because I get it back from the worthless wretch who stole it, from the woman who robbed the dead and the living. Her punishment will surely come, but not through me. She knew not altogether what she did, and thus unknowing. She only stole. Now we must wait. He went away on the word, leaving me with a new mystery to think of, a new puzzle to grapple with. The forenoon was a dreary time, but at noon the solicitor came. Mr. Marquand of Holman, sons Marquand and Litterdale. He was very genial and very appreciative of what we had done, and took off our hands, all cares as to details. During lunch he told us that Mrs. Westenra had for some time expected sudden death from her heart, and had put her affairs in absolute order. She, he informed us that, with the exception of a certain entailed property of Lucy's father's, which now, in default of direct issue, went back to a distant branch of the family. The whole estate, real and personal, was left absolutely to Arthur Holmwood. When he had told us so much, he, he went on. Frankly, we did our best to prevent such a testamentary disposition, and pointed out certain contingen contingencies that might leave her daughter either penniless or not so free as she should be to act regarding a matrimonial alliance. Indeed, we pressed the matter so far that we almost came into collision, for she asked us if we were or were not prepared to carry out her wishes. Of course, we had then no alternative but to accept. We were right in principle, and ninety-nine times out of a hundred we should have proved, by the logic of events, the accuracy of our judgment. Frankly, however, I must admit that in this case any other form of disposition would have rendered impossible the carrying out of her wishes, for by her predeceasing her daughter, the latter would have come into possession of the property, and even had she only survived her mother by five minutes, her property would, in case there were no will, and a will was a practical impossibility in such a case, have been treated at her decease as under intestacy, in which case Lord Caldalming, though so dear a friend, would have had no claim in the world, and the inheritors, being remote, would not be likely to abandon their just rights for sentimental reasons regarding an entire stranger. I assure you, my dear sirs, I am rejoiced at the result, perfectly rejoiced. He was a good fellow, but his rejoicing at the one little part in which he was officially interested of so great a tragedy was an object lesson in the limitations of sympathetic understanding. He did not remain long, but 
said he would look in later in the day and see Lord Galdame. His coming, however, had been a certain comfort to us, since it assured us that we should not have to dread hostile criticism as to any of our acts. Arthur was expected at five o'clock, and so a little before that time we visited the death chamber. It was so in very truth, for now both mother and daughter lay in it. The undertaker, true to his craft, had made the best display he could of his goods, and there was a mortuary air about the place that lowered our spirits at once. Van Helsing ordered the former arrangement to be adhered to, explaining that, as Lord Galdaming was coming very soon, it would be less harrowing to his feelings to see all that was left of his fiancée quite alone. The undertaker seemed shocked at his own stupidity, and exerted himself to restore things to the condition in which we left them the night before, so that when Arthur came, such shocks to his feelings as we could avoid were saved. Poor fellow! He looked desperately sad and broken. Even his stalwart manhood seemed to have shrunk somewhat under the strain of his much-tried emotions. He had, I knew, been very genuinely and devotedly attached to his father, and to lose him, and at such a time, was a bitter blow to him. With me he was warm as ever, and to Van Helsing he was sweetly courteous. But I could not help seeing that there was some constraint with him. The professor noticed it too, and, the, and motioned me to bring him upstairs. I did so, and left him at the door of the room, as I felt he would like to be quite alone with her. But he took my arm and led me in, saying huskily, You loved her too, old fellow. She told me all about it, and there was no friend at a closer place in her heart than you. I don't know how to thank you for all you have done for her. I can't think yet. Here he suddenly broke down, and threw his arms around my shoulders and laid his head on my breast, crying. Oh, Jack, Jack, what shall I do? The whole of life seems gone for me all at once, and there is nothing in the wide world for me to live for. I comforted him as well as I could. In such cases, men do not need much expression. A grip of the hand, the tightening of an arm over the shoulder, a sob in unison, are expressions of sympathy dear to a man's heart. I stood still and silent till his sobs died away, and then I said softly to him, Come and look at her. Together, we moved over to the bed, and I lifted the lawn from her face. God, how beautiful she was. Every hour seemed to be enhancing her loveliness. It frightened and amazed me somewhat, and for Arthur, he fell a-trembling, and finally was shaken with doubt, as with Og. At last, after a long pause, he said to me in a faint whisper, Jack, is she really dead? I assured him sadly that it was so, and went on to suggest, for I felt that such a horrible doubt should not have life for a moment longer than I could help, that it often happened that after death faces became softened and even resolved into their youthful beauty, 
that this was especially so when death had been preceded by any acute or prolonged suffering. It seemed to quite do away with any doubt, and after kneeling beside the couch for a while, and looking at her lovingly and long, he turned aside. I told him that that must be goodbye, as the coffin had to be prepared, so he went back and took her dead hand in his and kissed it, and bent over and kissed her forehead. He came away, fondly looking back over his shoulder at her as he came. I left him in the drawing room and told Van Helsing that he had said goodbye, so the latter went to the kitchen to tell the undertaker's men to proceed with the preparations and to screw up the coffin. When he came out of the room again, I told him of Arthur's question, and he replied, I'm not surprised. Just now I doubted for a moment myself. We all dined together, and I could see that poor Art was trying to make the best of things. Van Helsing had been silent all dinner time, but when we had lit our cigars, he said, Lord, but Arthur interrupted him, No, no, not that, for God's sake, not yet at any rate. Forgive me, sir, I did not mean to speak offensively. It is only because my loss is so recent. The professor answered very sweetly. I only used that name because I was in doubt. I must not call you Mr. And I have grown to love you, yes, my dear boy, to love you as Arthur. Arthur held out his hand and took the old man's warm and took the old man's warmly. Call me what you will, he said. I hope I may always have the title of a friend, and let me say that I am at a loss for words to thank you for your goodness to my poor dear. He paused a moment and went on. I know that she understood your goodness even better than I do, and if I was rude or in any way wanting at that time you acted so, you remember, the professor nodded, you must forgive me. He answered with a grave kindness. I know it was hard for you to quite trust me then, for to trust such violence needs to understand, and I take it that you do not, that you cannot trust me now, for you do not yet understand, and there may be more times when I shall want you to trust when you cannot, and may not, and must not yet understand. But the time will come when your trust shall be whole and complete in me, and when you shall understand as though the sunlight himself shone through. Then you shall bless me from first to last for your own sake, and for the sake of others, and for her dear sake, to whom I swore to protect. And indeed, indeed, sir, said Arthur warmly, I shall in all ways trust you. I know and believe you have a very noble heart, and you are Jack's friend, and you are hers. You shall do what you like. The professor cleared his throat a couple of times, as though about to speak, and finally said, May I ask you something now? Certainly. You know that Mrs. Westenra left you all her property? No, poor dear, I never thought of it. And as it is all yours, you have a right to deal with it as you will. I want you to give me permission to read all of Miss Lucy's papers and letters. Believe me, it is no idle curiosity. I have a motive of which, be sure, she would have approved. I have them all here, 
strange eye look through words into her soul. I shall keep them, if I may, even you may not see them yet, but I shall keep them safe. No word shall be lost, and in the good time I shall give them back to you. It's a hard thing I ask, but you will do it, you will not, for Lucy's sake. Arthur spoke out heartily like his old self. Dr. Van Helsing, you may do what you will. I feel that in saying this I am doing what my dear one would have approved. I shall not trouble you with questions till the time comes. The old professor stood up as he said solemnly, And you are right. There will be pain for us all, but it will not be all pain, nor will this pain be the last. We, and you too, you most of all, my dear boy, will have to pass through the bitter water before we reach the sweet. But we must be brave, of heart and, unself and unselfish, and do our duty, and all will be well. I slept on a sofa in Arthur's room that night. Van Helsing did not go to bed at all. He went to and fro, as if patrolling the house, and was never out of sight of the room where Lucy lay in her coffin, strewn with the wild garlic flowers, which sent, through the odor of lily and rose, a heavy, overpowering smell into the night. Mina Harker's Journal, 22nd of September In the train to Exeter, Jonathan sleeping. It seems only yesterday that the last entry was made, and yet how much between then, in Whitby, and all the world before me, Jonathan away, and no news of him, and now married to Jonathan. Jonathan a solicitor, a partner, rich, master of his business. Mr. Hawkins dead and buried, and Jonathan with another attack that may harm him. Some day he may ask me about it. Down it all goes. I am rusty in my shorthand. See what unexpected prosperity does for us so it may be as well to freshen it up again with an exercise anyhow. The service was very simple and very solemn. There were only ourselves and the servants there, one or two old friends of his from Exeter, his London agent, and a gentleman representing Sir John Paxton, the president of the Incorporated Law Society. Jonathan and I stood hand in hand, and we felt that our best and dearest friend was gone from us. We came back to town quietly, taking a bus to Hyde Park Corner. Jonathan thought it would interest me to go into the row for a while, so we sat down, but there were very few people there, and it was sad-looking and desolate to see so many empty chairs. It made us think of the empty chair at home, so we got up and walked down Piccadilly. Jonathan was holding me by the arm, the way he used to in the old days before I went to school. I felt it very improper, for you can't go on for some years teaching etiquette and decorum to other girls without the pedantry of it biting into yourself a bit. But it was Jonathan, and he was my husband, and we didn't know anybody who saw us, and we didn't care if they did. So on we walked. I was looking at a very beautiful girl in a big cartwheel hat, sitting in a Victoria, outside Giuliano's, 
when I felt Jonathan clutch my arm so tight that it hurt me, and he said under his breath, My God, I am always anxious about Jonathan, for I fear that some nervous fit may upset him again. So I turned to him quickly and asked him what it was that disturbed him. He was very pale, and his eyes seemed bulging out, as, half in terror and half in amazement, he gazed at a tall, thin man, with a beaky nose and black mustache and pointed beard, who was also observing the pretty girl. He was looking at her so hard that he did not see either of us, and so I had a good view of him. His face was not a good face. It was hard and cruel and sensual, and his big white teeth, that looked all the whiter because his lips were so red, were pointed like an animal's. Jonathan kept staring at him, till I was afraid he would notice. I feared he might take it ill. He looked so fierce and nasty. I asked Jonathan why he was disturbed, and he answered, evidently thinking that I knew as much about it as he did. Do you see who it is? No, dear, I said. I don't know him. Who is it? His answer seemed to shock and thrill me, for it was said as if he did not know that it was to me, Mina, to whom he was speaking. It is the man himself. The poor dear was evidently terrified at something, very greatly terrified. I do believe that if he had not had me to lean on and to support him, he would have sunk down. He kept staring. A man came out of the shop with a small parcel and gave it to the lady, who then drove off. The dark man kept his eyes fixed on her, and when the carriage moved up Piccadilly, he followed it in the same direction and hailed a hansom. Jonathan kept looking after him and said, as if to himself, I believe it is the Count, but he has grown young. My God, if this be so, oh my God, my God, if I only knew, if I only knew. He was distressing himself so much that I feared to keep his mind on the subject by asking him many questions. So I remained silent. I drew him away quietly, and he, holding my arm, came easily. We walked a little further, and then went in and sat for a while in the green park. It was a hot day for autumn, and there was a comfortable seat in a shady place. After a few minutes staring at nothing, Jonathan's eyes closed, and he went quietly into his sleep, with his head on my shoulder. I thought it was the best thing for him, so did not disturb him. In about twenty minutes he woke up and said to me, quite cheerfully, Why, Mina, have I been asleep? Oh, do forgive me for being so rude. Come, and we'll have a cup of tea somewhere. He had evidently forgotten all about the dark stranger, as in his illness he had forgotten all that this episode had reminded him of. I don't like this lapsing into forgetfulness. It may make or continue some injury to the brain. I must not ask him, for fear I shall do more harm than good, but I must somehow learn the facts of his journey abroad. The time has come, I fear, when I must open the parcel and know what is written. Oh, Jonathan, you will, I know, forgive me if I do wrong, but it is for your own dear sake. 
soul who was so good to us. Jonathan still pale and dizzy under a slight relapse of his malady. And now a telegram from Van Helsing, whoever he may be. You will be grieved to hear that Mrs. Westenra died five days ago, and that Lucy died the day before yesterday. They were both buried today. Oh, what a wealth of sorrow in a few words. Poor Mrs. Westenra. Poor Lucy. Gone, gone, never to return to us. And poor, poor Arthur to have lost such sweetness out of his life. God help us all to bear our troubles. Dr. Seward's Diary, 22nd of September It is all over. Arthur has gone back to Ring and has taken Quincy Morris with him. What a fine fellow is Quincy. I believe in my heart of hearts that he suffered as much about Lucy's death as any of us. But he bore himself through it like a moral viking. If America can go on breeding men like that, she will be a power in the world indeed. Van Helsing is lying down, having a rest preparatory to his journey. He goes over to Amsterdam tonight, but says he returns tomorrow night, that he only wants to make some arrangements which can only be made personally. He is to stop with me then, if he can. He says he has work to do in London, which may take him some time. Poor old fellow. I fear that the strain of the past week has broken down even his iron strength. All the time of the burial he was, I could see, putting some terrible restraint on himself. When it was all over, we were standing beside Arthur, who, poor fellow, was speaking of his part in the operation, where his blood had been transfused to his Lucy's veins. I could see Van Helsing's face grow white and purple by turns. Arthur was saying that he felt, since then, as if they two had been really married, and that she was his wife in the sight of God. None of us said a word of the other operations, and none of us ever shall. Arthur and Quincy went away together to the station, and Van Helsing and I came on here. The moment we were alone in the carriage, he gave way to a regular fit of hysterics. He has den denied to me since that it was hysterics, and insisted that it was only a sense of humor asserting itself under very terrible conditions. He laughed till he cried, and I had to draw down the blinds lest anyone should see us and misjudge. And then he cried till he laughed again, and laughed and cried together just as a woman does. I tried to be stern with him, as one is to a woman under the circumstances, but it had no effect. Men and women are so different in manifestations of nervous strength or weakness. Then, when his face grew grave and stern again, I asked him why his mirth, and why at such a time. His reply was in a way characteristic of him for it was logical and forceful and mysterious. He said, Ah, you don't comprehend, friend John. Do not think that I am not sad, though I laugh. See, I have cried even when the laugh did choke me. But no more think that I am all sorry, 
just the same. Keep it always with you that laughter who knock at your door and say, May I come in? is not the true laughter. No, he is a king, and he come when and how he like. He has no person. He choose no time of suitability. He say, I am here. Behold, an example, I grieve my heart out for that so sweet young girl. I give my blood for her. Though I am old and worn, I give my time, my skill, my sleep. I let my other sufferers want that so she may have all. And yet I can laugh at her very grave, laugh when the clay from the spade of the sexton drop upon their coffin and say, thud, thud, to my heart, till it send back the blood from my cheek. My heart bleed for that poor boy, that dear boy, so of the age of mine own boy, had I been so blessed that he live, and with his hair and eyes the same. There, you know now why I love him so. And yet, when he say things that touch my husband heart to the quick, and make my father heart yearn to him as to no other man, not even to you, friend John, for we are more level in experiences than father and son, yet even at such moment, King laugh, he come to me and shout and bellow in my ear, Here I am, here I am, till the blood come dance back and bring some of the sunshine that he carry with him to my cheek. Oh, friend, John, it is a strange world, a sad world, a world full of mysteries and woes and troubles, and yet when King Laugh come, he make them all dance to the time he, to the tune he play, bleeding hearts and dry bones of the churchyard, and tears that burn as they fall, all dance together to the music that he make with that smileless mouth of him, and believe me, friend John, that he is good to come, and kind. Ah, oh, we men and women are like ropes drawn tight with strain that pull us different ways. Then tears come, and, like the rain on the ropes, they brace us up, until perhaps the strain become too great, and we break. But King Laugh, he come like the sunshine, and he ease off the strain again, and we bear to go on with our labor what it may be. I did not like to wound him by pretending not to see his idea, but as I did not yet understand the cause of his laughter, I asked him. He answered me. As he answered me, his face grew stern, and he said in quite a different tone, Oh, it was the grim irony of it all, this so lovely lady, garlanded with flowers that looked so fair as life, till one by one we wondered if she were truly dead. She laid in that so fine marble house in that lonely churchyard, where rest so many of her kin, laid there with, an, with a mother who loved her, and whom she loved, and that sacred bell going, toll, 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 so sad and slow, and those holy men, with the white garments of the angel, pretending to read books, and yet all the time, their eyes never on the page, and all us with the bowed head, and all for what? She is dead, so is it not? Well, for the life of me, Professor, I said, I can't see anything to laugh at in all that. Why, your explanation makes it a harder puzzle than before. 
asked him to come for a walk. The others had picked up the phrase and used it as an occasion served. This is the more natural, as the favorite game of the little ones at present is luring each other away by wiles. The correspondent writes us that to see some of the tiny tots pretending to be the blue for lady is supremely funny. Some of our caricature caricaturist might, she, he says, take a lesson in the irony of grotesque by comparing the reality and the picture. It is only in accordance with general principles of human nature that the blue for lady should be the popular role at these alfresco performances. Our correspondent naively says that even Ellen Terry could not be so winningly attractive some of these grubby-faced little children pretend, and even imagine themselves to be. There is, however, possibly a serious side to the question, for some of the children, indeed all, who have been missed at night, have been slightly torn or wounded in the throat. The wounds seem such as might be made by a rat or a small dog, and although of not much importance individually, would tend to show that whatever animal inflicts them has a system or method of its own. The police of the division have been instructed to keep a sharp lookout for straying children, especially when very young, in and around Hampstead Heath, and for any stray dog which may be about. The Westminster Gazette, 25th of September, Extra Special, The Hampstead Horror, Another child injured. The blue for lady. We have just received intelligence that another child, missed last night, was only discovered late in the morning, under a furze brush at the Shooter's Hillside of Hampstead Heath, which is, perhaps, less frequented than the other parts. It has the same tiny wound in the throat, as had, as had been noticed in other cases. It was terribly weak and looked quite emaciated. It, too, when partially restored, had the common story to tell of being lured away by the blue for lady. night. 
friends upset me so. Poor dear, how he must have suffered, whether it be true or only imagination. I wonder if there is any truth in it at all. Did he get his brain fever, and then write all those terrible things? Or had he some cause for it all? I suppose I shall never know, for I dare not open the subject to him. And yet, that man we saw yesterday, he seemed quite certain of him. Poor fellow. I suppose it was the funeral upset him, and sent his mind back on some train of thought. He believes it all himself. I remember how, on our wedding day, he said, Unless some solemn duty come upon me to go back to the bitter hours, asleep or awake, mad or sane. There seems to be through it all some thread of continuity. That fearful Count was coming to London. If it should be, and he came to London with its steaming millions, there may be a solemn duty, as if it come, we must not shrink from it. I shall be prepared. I shall get my typewriter this very hour and begin transcribing. Then we shall be ready for other eyes if, it, if required, and if it be wanted. Then, perhaps, if I am ready, poor Jonathan may not be upset, for I can speak for him and never let him be troubled or worried with it at all. If ever Jonathan quite gets over the nervousness, he may want to tell me of it all, and I can ask him questions and find out things and see how I may comfort him. Letter Van Helsing to Mrs. Harker, 24th of September Confidence Dear Madam, I pray you to pardon my writing, in that I am so far, friend, as that I sent to you sad news of Miss Lucy Westenra's death. By the kindness of Lord Galdalming, I am empowered to read her letters and papers, for I am deeply concerned about certain matters vitally important. In them I find some letters from you which show how great friends you were, and how you love her. Oh, Madame Mina, by that love, I implore you, help me. It is for others' good that I ask, to redress great wrongs and to lift much and terrible troubles that may be more great than you can know. May it be that I see you. You can trust me. I am friend of Dr. John Seward and of Lord Galdalming. That was Arthur of Miss Lucy. I must keep it private for the present from all. I should come to Exeter to see you at once. If you tell me I am privileged to come, and where and when. I implore your pardon, madam. I have read your letters to poor Lucy, and now, and know how good you are, and how your husband suffer. So I pray you, if it may be, enlighten him not, lest it may harm. Again, your pardon, and forgive me. Van Helsing. Telegram, Mrs. Harker to Van Helsing. 25th of September. Come today by quarter past ten train if you can catch it. Can see you any time you call. Philomena Harker. Mina Harker's Journal. 25th of September.
excited as the time draws near for the visit of Dr. Van Helsing, for somehow I expect that it will throw some light upon Jonathan's sad experience. And as he attended poor dear Lucy in her last illness, he can tell me all about her. That is the reason of his coming. It is concerning Lucy and her sleepwalking, and not about Jonathan. Then I shall never know the real truth now. How silly I am. That awful journal gets hold of my imagination and tinges everything with something of its own color. Of course it is about Lucy. That habit came back to the poor dear, and that awful night on the cliff must have made her ill. I had almost forgotten in my own affairs how ill she was afterwards. She must have told him of her sleepwalking adventure on the cliff, and that I knew all about it, and now he wants me to tell him about it, so that he may understand. I hope I did right in not saying anything of it to Mrs. Westenra. I should never forgive myself if any act of mine, were it even a negative one, brought harm on poor dear Lucy. I hope, too, Dr. Van Helsing will not blame me. I have had so much trouble and anxiety of late that I feel I cannot bear any more just at present. I suppose a cry does us all good at times, clears the air as other rain does. Perhaps it was reading the journal yesterday that upset me. And then, Jonathan went away this morning to stay away from me all day and night. The first time we have been parted since our marriage. I do hope the dear fellow will take care of himself, and that nothing will occur to upset him. It is two o'clock, and the doctor will be here soon now. I shall say nothing of Jonathan's journal unless he asks me. I am so glad I have typewritten out my own journal, so that in case he asks about Lucy, I can hand it to him. It will save much questioning. Later. He has come and gone. Oh, what a strange meeting, and how it all makes my head whirl round. I feel like one in a dream. Can it be all possible? or even a part of it. If I had not read Jonathan's journal first, I should never have accepted even a possibility. Poor, poor dear Jonathan. Oh, he must have suffered. Please, the good God, all this may not upset him again. I shall try to save him from it, but it may be even a consolation and a help to him. Terrible though it be and awful in its consequences, to know for certain that his eyes and ears and brain did not deceive him, and that it is all true. It may be that it is the doubt which haunts him, that when the doubt is removed, no matter which, waking or dreaming, may prove the truth, he will be more satisfied and better able to bear the shock. Dr. Van Helsing must be a good man as well as a clever one, if he is Arthur's friend, and Dr. Seward's if they brought him all the way from Holland to look after Lucy. I feel, from having seen him, that he is good and kind, and of a noble nature. When he comes tomorrow, I shall ask him about Jonathan, and then, please God, all this sorrow and anxiety may lead to a good end. I used to think I would like to practice interviewing. Jonathan's friend on the Exeter News told 
set back over a broad, deep chest, and a neck well balanced on the trunk, as the head is on the neck. The poise of the head strikes one at once as indicative of thought and power. The head is noble, well-sized, broad, and large behind the ears. The face, clean-shaven, shows a hard, square chin, a large, resolute, mobile mouth, a good-sized nose, rather straight but with quick, sensitive nostrils that seem to broaden as the big, bushy brows come down and the mouth tightens. The forehead is broad and fine, rising at first almost straight and then sloping back above two bumps or ridges wide apart. Such a forehead that the reddish hair cannot possibly tumble over it, but falls naturally back into the sides. Big, dark blue eyes are set widely apart and are quick and tender or stern with the man's moods. He said to me, Mrs. Harker, is it not? I bowed assent. That was Miss Mina Murray. Again I assented. It is Mina Murray that I came to see that was a friend of that poor dear child, Lucy Westenra. Madam Mina, it is on account of the dead I come. Sir, I said, you could have no better claim on me than that you were a friend and helper of Lucy Westenra and I held out my hand. He took it and said tenderly, Oh, Madam Mina, I knew that the friend of that poor lily girl must be good, but I had yet to learn. He finished his speech with a courtly bow. I asked him what it was that he wanted to see me about, so he at once began. I have read your letters to Miss Lucy. Forgive me, but I had to begin to inquire somewhere and there was none to ask. I know that you were with her at Whitby. She sometimes kept a diary. You need not look surprised, Madam Mina. It was begun after you had left, and was made in imitation of you, and in that diary she traces by inference certain things to a sleepwalking in which she puts down that you saved her. In great perplexity, then I come to you, and ask you out of your so much kindness to tell me all of it that you remember. I can tell you, I think, Dr. Van Helsing, all about it. Ah, then you have good memory for facts, for details. It is not always so with young ladies. No, doctor, but I wrote it all down at the time. I can show it to you if you like. Oh, Madam Mina, I will be grateful. You will do me much favor. I could not resist the temptation of mystifying him a bit. I suppose it is some of the taste of the original apple that remains still in our mouths. So I handed him the shorthand diary. He took it with a grateful bow and said, May I read it? If you wish, I answered as demurely as I could. He opened it, and for an instant his face fell. Then he stood up and bowed. Oh, you so clever woman, he said. I long knew that Mr. Jonathan was a man of much thankfulness. But see, his wife have all the good things. And will you not so much honor me? 
and so help me as to read it for me. Alas, I know not the shorthand. By this time, my little joke was over, and I was almost ashamed, so I took the typewritten copy from my work basket and handed it to him. Forgive me, I said. I could not help it, but I had been thinking that it was of dear Lucy that you wished to ask, and so that you might not have to wait, not on my account, but because I know your time must be precious, I have written it out on the typewriter for you. He took it, and his eyes glistened. You are so good, he said, and may I read it now? I may want to ask you some things when, when I have read. By all means, I said, read it over whilst I order lunch, and then you can ask me questions whilst we eat. He bowed and settled himself in a chair with his back to the light, and became absorbed in the papers, whilst I went to see after lunch, chiefly in order that he might not be disturbed. When I came back, I found him walking hurriedly up and down the room, his face all ablaze with excitement. He rushed up to me and took me by both hands. Oh, Madam Mina, he said, how can I say what I owe to you? This paper is as sunshine. It opens the gate to me. I am dazed, I am dazzled, with so much light, and yet clouds roll in behind the light every time. But that you do not, cannot comprehend. Oh, but I am grateful to you, you so clever woman, madam. He said this very solemnly. If ever Abraham Van Helsing can do anything for you or yours, I trust you will let me know. It will be a pleasure and delight if I may serve you as a friend. As a friend, but all I have ever learned, all I can ever do, shall be for you and those you love. There are darknesses in life, and there are lights. You are one of the lights. You will have happy life and good life, and your husband will be blessed in you. But, doctor, you praise me too much, and... And you do not know me, not know you, I, who am old, and who have studied all my life, men and women, I, who have made my specialty the brain, and all that belongs to him, and all that follow from him, I, and I have read your diary that you have so goodly written to me, and which breathes out truth in every line, I, who have read your so sweet letter to poor Lucy, of your marriage and your trust, not know you. O oh, madam, Mina, good women, tell all their lives, and by day and hour, and by minute, such things that angels can read. And we men who wish to know have in us something of angels' eyes. Your husband is noble nature, and you are noble too, for your trust, and trust cannot be where there is mean nature. And your husband, tell me of him, is he quite well? Is all of that fever gone, and is he strong and hearty? I saw here an opening to ask him about Jonathan, so I said. He was almost recovered, but he has been greatly upset by Mr. Hawkins' death. He interrupted. Oh yes, I know, I know. I have read your last two letters. I went on. I suppose this upset him, for when we were in town on Thursday, last he had a sort of shock. 
a shock, and after brain fever so soon, that was not good. What kind of shock was it? He thought he saw someone who recalled something terrible, something which led to his brain fever. And here the whole thing seemed to overwhelm me in a rush. The pity of Jonathan, the horror which he experienced, the whole fearful mystery of his diary, and the fear that has been brooding over me ever since, all came in a tumult. I suppose I was hysterical, for I threw myself down on my knees and held up my hands to him, and implored him to make my husband well again. He took my hands and raised me up and made me sit on the sofa, and sat by me. He held my hand in his, and said to me with, oh, such infinite sweetness, My life is a barren and lonely one, and so full of work that I have not had much time for friendships. But since I have been summoned to here by my friend John Seward, I have known so many good people and seen such nobility that I feel more than ever, and it has grown with my advancing years, the loneliness of my life. Believe me, then, that I come here full of respect for you, and you have given me hope, hope not in what I am seeking of, but that there are good women still left to make life happy, good women whose lives and whose truths may make good lesson for the children that are to be. I am glad, glad that I may here be of some use to you, for if your husband suffer, you suffer within the range of my study and experience. I promise you that I will gladly do all for him that I can, all to make his life strong and manly, and your life a happy one. Now you must eat. You are overwrought and perhaps overanxious. Husband Jonathan would not like to see you so pale, and what he like, not where he love, is not to his good. Therefore, for his sake, you must eat and smile. You have told me all about Lucy. So now we shall not speak of it, lest it distress. I shall stay in Exeter tonight, for I want to think much over what you have told me, and when I have thought, I will ask you questions, if I may, and then, too, you will tell me of husband Jonathan's trouble, so far as you can, but not yet. You must eat now. Afterwards you shall tell me all. After lunch, when we went back to the drawing room, he said to me, and now tell me all about him. When it came to speaking to this great learned man, I began to fear that he would think me a weak fool, and Jonathan a madman. That journal was all so strange, and I hesitated to go on. But he was so sweet and kind, and he had promised to help, and I trusted him. So I said, Dr. Van Helsing, what I have to tell you is so queer that you must not laugh at me or my husband. I have been, since yesterday, in a sort of fever of doubt. You must be kind to me, and not think me foolish that I have even half believed some very strange things. He reassured me by his manner as well as his words when he said, Oh, my dear, if you only knew how strange is the matter regarding which I am here, it is you who would laugh. I have learned not to think little of anyone's belief, no matter how strange it be. I have tried to keep an open mind, 
and it is not the ordinary things of life that could close it, but the strange things, the extraordinary things, the things that make one doubt if they be mad or sane. Thank you, thank you a, a thousand times. You have taken a weight off my mind. If you will let me, I shall give you a paper to read. It is long, but I have typewritten it out. I will tell you my trouble and Jonathan's. It is the copy of his journal when abroad, and all that happened. I dare not say anything of it. You will read for yourself and judge, and then when I see you, perhaps you will be very kind and tell me what you think. I promise, he said, as I gave him the papers. I shall in the morning, so soon as I can, come to see you and your husband, if I may. Jonathan will be here at half past eleven, and you must come to lunch with us and see him then. You could catch the quick 334 train, which will leave you at Paddington. Before eight. He was surprised at my knowledge of the trains offhand, but he does not know that I have made up all the trains. To and from Exeter, so that I may help Jonathan in case he is in a hurry. So he took the papers with him and went away, and I sit here thinking, thinking I don't know what. Letter by hand, Van Helsing to Mrs. Arker, 25th of September, 6 o'clock. Dear Madam Mina, I have read your husband's so wonderful diary. You may sleep without doubt. Strange and terrible as it is, it is true. I will pledge my life on it. It may be worse for others, but for him and you there is no dread. He is a noble fellow, and let me tell you from experience of men that one who would do as he did in going down that wall and to that room, hey, and going a second time, is not one to be injured in permanence by a shock. His brain and his heart are all right. This I swear for I have even seen him, so be at rest. I shall have much to ask him of other things. I am blessed that today I come to see you, for I have learned all at once so much that again I am dazzled, dazzled more than ever, and I must think. Yours faithful, Abraham Van Helsing. Letter, Mrs. Arker to Van Helsing, 25th of September, 6.30 p.m. My dear Dr. Van Helsing, a thousand thanks for your kind letter, which has taken a great weight off my mind. And yet, if it be true, what terrible things there are in the world, and what an awful thing if that man, that monster, be really in London. I fear to think. I have this moment, whilst writing, had a wire from Jonathan, saying that he leaves by the 6.25 tonight from Lonston, and will be here at 10.18, so that I shall have no fear tonight. Will you, therefore, instead of lunching with us, please come to breakfast at 8 o'clock, if this be not too early for you. You can get away, if you are in a hurry, by the 10.30 train, which will bring you to Paddington by 2.35. Do not answer this, as I shall take it that, if I do not hear, you will come to breakfast. Believe me, 
I have a great task to do, and at the beginning it is to know. You can help me here. Can you tell me what went before you are going to Transylvania? Later on I may ask more help, and of a different kind, but at first this will do. Look here, sir, I said. Does what you have to do concern the Count? It does, he said solemnly. Then I am with you, heart and soul. As you go by the 10.30 train, you will not have time to read them, but I shall get the bundle of papers. You can take them with you and read them in the train. After breakfast I saw him to the station. When we were parting, he said, Perhaps you will come to town if I send to you and take Madame Mina, too. We shall both come when you will, I said. I had got him the morning papers and the London papers of the previous night, and while we were talking at the carriage window, waiting for the train to start, he was turning them over. His eyes suddenly seemed to catch something in one of them, the Westminster Gazette. I knew it by the color, and he grew quite white. He read something intently, groaning to himself. Mein Gott, mein Gott, so soon, so soon. I do not think he remembered me at the moment. Just then the whistle blew, and the train moved off. This recalled him to himself, and he leaned out of the window and waved his hand, calling out, Love to Madame Mina. I shall write so soon as ever I can. Dr. Seward's Diary, 26th of September Truly there is no such thing as finality. Not a week since I said, Finis, and yet here I am, starting fresh again, or rather going on with the same record. Until this afternoon I had no cause to think of what is done. Renfeld had become, to all intents, as sane as he ever was. He was already well ahead with his fly business, and he had just started in the spider line also, so he had not been of any trouble to me. I had a letter from Arthur written on Sunday, and from it I gather that he is bearing up wonderfully well. Quincy Morris is with him, and that is much of a help, for he himself is a bubbling well of good spirits. Quincy wrote me a line, too, and from him I hear that Arthur is beginning to recover something of his old buoyancy. So as to them all my mind is at rest. As for myself, I was settling down to my work with the enthusiasm which I used to have for it, so that I might fairly have said that the wound which poor Lucy left on me was becoming cicatrized. Everything is, however, now reopened, and what is to be the end, God only knows. I have an idea that Van Helsing thinks he knows too, but he will only let out enough at a time to whet curiosity. He went to Exeter yesterday and stayed there all night. Today he came back and almost bounded into the room at about half past five o'clock and thrust last, night, last night's Westminster, Westminster Gazette into my hand. What do you think of that? he asked as he stood back and folded his arms. I looked over the paper, for I really did not know what he meant, 
said. It is like poor Lucy's. And what do you make of it? Simply that there is some cause in common. Whatever it was that injured her has injured them. I did not quite understand his answer. That is true indirectly, but not directly. How do you mean, Professor? I asked. I was a little inclined to take his seriousness lightly, for, after all, four days of rest and freedom from burning, harrowing anxiety does help to restore one's own spirits. But when I saw his face, it sobered me. Never, even in the midst of our despair about poor Lucy, had he looked more stern. Tell me, I said, I can hazard no opinion. I do not know what to think, and I have no data on which to found a conjecture. Do you mean to tell me, friend John, that you have no suspicion as to what poor Lucy died of? Not after all the hints given, not only by events, but by me? Of nervous prostration following on great loss or waste of blood? And how the blood lost or waste? I shook my head. He stepped over and sat down beside me and went on. You are a clever man, my friend John. You reason well, and your wit is bold, but you are too prejudiced. You do not let your eyes see nor your ears hear, and that which is outside your daily life is not of account to you. Do you not think that there are things which you cannot understand? and yet which are, that some people see things that others cannot. But there are things old and new which must not be contemplated by men's eyes, because they know, or think they know, some things which other men have told them. Ah, it is the fault of our science that it wants to explain all, and if it explain not, it says there is nothing to explain. But yet we see around us every day the growth of new beliefs, which think themselves new, and which are yet but the old, which pretend to be young, like the fine ladies at the opera. I suppose now you do not believe in corporeal transference, no, nor in materialization, no, nor in astral bodies, no, nor in the reading of thought, no, nor in hypnotism, Yes, I said. Charcot has proved that pretty well. He smiled as he went on. Then you are satisfied as to it, yes. And of course, then you understand how it act and can follow the mind of the great Charcot. Alas, that he is no more. Into the very soul of the patient that he influenced, no. Then, friend, John, I am I to take it that you simply accept fact and are satisfied to let from premise, from premise to conclusion, to be a blank? No. Then tell me, for I am student of the brain, how you accept the hypnotism and reject the thought reading. Let me tell you, my friend, that there are things done today in electrical science which would have been deemed unholy by the very men who discovered electricity, who would themselves, not so long before, have been burned as wizards. There are always mysteries in life. Why was it that Meth 
that you cannot. 
sense of an American who so defined faith, that which enables us to believe things which we know to be untrue. For one, I follow that man. He meant that we shall have an open mind and not let a little bit of truth check the rush of a big truth like a small rock does a railway, a railway truck. We get the small truth first. Good. We keep him and we value him. But all the same, we must not let him think himself all the truth in the universe. Then you want me not to let some previous conviction in injure the receptivity of my mind with regard to some strange matter. Do I read your lesson all right? Ah, you are my favorite pupil still. It is worth to teach you. Now that you are willing to understand, you have taken the first step to understand. You think then that those so small holes in the children's throats were made by the same that made the hole in Miss Lucy? I suppose so. He stood up and said solemnly, Then you are wrong. Oh, would it were so? But alas, no. It is worse, far, far worse. In God's name, Professor Van Helsing, what do you mean? I cried. He threw himself with a despairing gesture into a chair and placed his elbows on the table, covering his face with his hands as he spoke. They were made by Miss Lucy. and proof. 
truth he most abhorred. He saw my hesitation and spoke. The logic is simple. No madman's logic this time. Jumping from tussock to tussock in a misty, misty bog. If it be not true, then proof will be relief. At worst, it will not harm. If it be not true, then proof will be relief. At worst, it will not harm. If it be true, ah, there is the dread. Yet very dread should help my cause, for in it is some need of, of belief. Come, I tell you what I propose. First, that we go off now and see that child in the hospital. Dr. Vi Vincent of the North Hospital, where the papers say the child is, is a friend of mine, and I think of yours since you were in class at Amsterdam. He will let two scientists see his case, if he will not let two friends. We shall tell him nothing, but only that we wish to learn, and then, and then, he took a key from his pocket and held it up. And then we spend the night, you and I, in the churchyard where Lucy lies. This is the key that locked the tomb. I had it from the coffin man to give to Arthur. My heart sank with, within me, for I felt that there was some fearful ordeal before us. I could do nothing, however, so I plucked up what heart I could, and said that we had better hasten, hasten as the afternoon was passing. We found the child awake. It had had a sleep and taken some food, and altogether was going on well. Dr. Vincent took the bandage from his throat and showed us the punctures. There was no mistaking the similarity to those which had been on Lucy's throat. They were smaller, and the edges looked fresher, that was all. We asked Vincent to what he attributed them and he replied that it must have been a bite of some animal, perhaps a rat, but for his own part he was inclined to think that it was one of the bats which are so numerous on the northern heights of London. Out of so many harmless ones, he said, there may be some wild specimen from the south of a more malignant species. Some sailor may have brought one home and it managed to escape or even from the zoological gardens. A young one may have got loose, or one be bred there from a vampire. These things do occur, you know. Only ten days ago a wolf got out, and was, I believe, traced up in this direction. For a week after, the children were playing nothing but Red Riding Hood on the heath, and in every alley in the place, until this bluefer lady scare came along since when it has been quite a gala time with them. Even this poor little mite, when he woke up today, asked the nurse if he might go away. When she asked him why he wanted to go, he said he wanted to play with the blue for lady. I hope, said Van Helsing, that when you are sending the child home, you will caution its parents to keep strict watch over it. These fancies to stray are most dangerous, and if the child were to remain out another night, it would probably be fatal. 
but in any case I suppose you will not let it away for some days. Certainly not, not for a week at least, longer if the wound is not healed. Our visit to the hospital took more time than we had reckoned on, and the sun had dipped before we came out. When Van Helsing saw how dark it was, he said, There is no hurry, it is more late than I thought. Come, let us seek somewhere that we may eat, and then we shall go on our way. We dined at Jack Straw's castle, along with a little crowd of bicyclists and others who were genially noisy. About ten o'clock we started from the inn. It was then very dark, and the scattered lamps made the darkness greater when we were at once outside their individual radius. The professor had evidently noted the road we were to go, for he went on unhesitatingly, but as for me, I was in quite a mix-up as to locality. As we went further, we met, we met fewer and fewer people, till at last we were somewhat surprised when we met even the patrol of horse police going their usual suburban round. At last, we reached the wall of the churchyard, which we climbed over, with some little difficulty, for it was very dark, and the whole place seemed so strange to us. We found the West Enra tomb. The professor took the key, opened the creaky door, and standing back, politely, but quite unconsciously, motioned me to precede him. There was a delicious irony in the offer. of giving preference on such a ghastly occasion. My companion, my companion followed me quickly and cautiously drew the door to, after carefully ascertaining what the lock was, was a falling and not a spring one. In the latter case, we should have been in a bad plight. Then he fumbled in his bag and taking out a matchbox and a piece of candle, proceeded to, t to make a light. The tomb in the daytime, and when wreathed with fresh flowers, had looked grim and gruesome enough, but now, some days afterwards, when the flowers hung lank and dead, their whites turning to rust, and their greens to browns, when the spider and the beetle had resumed their accustomed dominance, when the time discolored stone, and dust-encrusted mortar, and rusty dank iron, and tarnished brass, and clouded silver plating gave back the feeble glimmer of a, cam of a candle. The effect was more miserable and sordid than could have been imagined. It conveyed irresistibly the idea that life, animal life, was not the only thing which could pass away. Van Helsing went about his work systematically holding his candle so that he could read the coffin plates, and so holding it that the spermaceti dropped in the white patches, which, congealed as they touched the metal, he made assurance of Lucy's coffin. Another search in his bag, and he took out a turnscrew. What are you going to do? I asked. To open the coffin, you shall yet be convinced. Straight away, he began taking out the screws, and finally lifted off the lid, 
showing the casing of lead beneath. The sight was almost too much for me. It seemed to be as much an affront to the dead as it would have been to have stripped off her clothes in her sleep whilst living. I actually took hold of his hand to stop him. He only said, You shall see. And again, fumbling in his bag, took out a tiny fret saw, striking the turnscrew through the lead with a swift downward stab, which made me wince. He made a small hole which was, however, big enough to admit the point of the saw. I had expected a rush of gas from the weak old corpse. We doctors who have had to study our dangers have to become accustomed to such things, and I drew back towards the door. But the professor never stopped for a moment. He sawed down a couple of feet along one side of the lead coffin, and then across and down the other side. Taking the end of the loose flange, he bent it back toward the foot of the coffin, and holding up the candle into the aperture, motioned me to look. I drew near and looked. The coffin was empty. It was certainly a surprise to me, and gave me a considerable shock, but Van Helsing was unmoved. He was now more sure than ever of his ground, and so emboldened seat in his task. Are you satisfied now, friend John? he asked. I felt all the dogged argumentativeness of my nature awake within me as I answered him. I am satisfied that Lucy's body is not in that coffin, but that only proves one thing. And what is that, friend John? That it is not there. That is good logic, you said, so far as it goes. But how do you, how can you, account for it not being there? Perhaps a body snatcher, I suggested. Some of the undertaker's people may have stolen it. I felt that I was speaking folly, and yet it was the only real cause which I could suggest. The professor sighed. Ah, well, he said, we must have more proof. Come with me. He put on the coffin lid again gathered up all his things and placed them in the bag, blew out the light, and placed the candle also in the bag. We opened the door and went out. Behind us he closed the door and locked it. He handed me the key, saying, Will you keep it? You had better be assured. I laughed. It was not a very cheerful laugh. I am bound to say, as I motioned him to keep it. A key is nothing, I said. There may be duplicates, and anyhow, it is not difficult to pick a lock of that kind. He said nothing, but put the key in his pocket. Then he told me to watch at one side of the churchyard whilst he would watch at the other. I took up my place behind a yew tree, and I saw his dark figure move until the intervening headstones and trees hid it from my sight. It was a lonely vigil. Just after I had taken my place, I heard a distant clock strike twelve, and in time came one and two. I was chilled and unnerved, and angry with the professor for taking me on such an errand, and with myself for coming. I was too cold and too sleepy to be keenly observant, and not sleepy enough to betray my trust, 
and I realized distinctly the perils of the law which we were incurring in our unhallowed work. Besides, I felt it was all so useless, outrageous as it was, to open a leaden coffin to see if a woman dead nearly a week were really dead. It now seemed the height of folly to open the tomb again. When we knew from the evidence of our, our own eyesight that the coffin was empty, I shrugged my shoulders, however, and rested silent, for Van Helsing had a way of going on his own road, no matter who remonstrated. He took the key, opened the vault, and again courteously motioned me to proceed. The place was not so gruesome as last night, but oh, how unutterably mean-looking when the sunshine streamed in. Van Helsing walked over to Lucy's coffin, and I followed. He bent over and again forced back the leaden flange, and then a shock of surprise and dismay shot through me. There lay Lucy, seemingly just as we had seen her the night before her funeral. She was, if possible, more radiantly beautiful than ever, and I could not believe that she was dead. The lips were red, nay, redder than before, and on the cheeks was a delicate bloom. Is this a juggle? I said to him. Are you convinced now? said the professor in response, and as he spoke he put over his hand, and in a way that made me shudder, pulled back the dead lips and showed the white teeth. See, he went on, see, they are even sharper than before. With this and this, and he touched one of the canine teeth and that below it, the little children can be bitten. Are you of belief now, friend John? Once more, argumentative hostility woke within me. I could not accept such an overwhelming idea as he suggested. So, with an attempt to argue of which I was even at the moment ashamed, I said, She may have been placed here since last night. Indeed, that is so, and by whom? I do not know someone has done it. And yet, she had been dead one week. Most peoples in that time would not look so. I had no answer for this, so was silent. Van Helsing did not seem to notice my silence. At any rate, he showed neither chagrin nor triumph. He was looking intently at the face of the dead woman, raising the eyelids and looking at the eyes and once more opening the lips and examining the teeth. Then he turned to me and said, Here, there is one thing which is different from all recorded. Here is some dual life that is not as the common. She was bitten by the vampire when she was in a trance, sleepwalking. Oh, you start, you do not know that, friend John, but you shall know it all later. And in trance could be bet could he best come to take more blood? In trance she died, and in trance she is undead too. So it is that she differ from all other. Usually, when the undead sleep at home, and as he spoke he made a comprehensive sweep of his arm to designate what to a vampire was home, their face show what they are. 
but this so sweet that was when she not undead, she go back to the nothings of the common dead. There is no malign there, see, and so it make hard that I must kill her in her sleep. This turned my blood cold, and it began to dawn upon me that I was accepting Van Helsing's theories. But if she were really dead, what was there of terror in the idea of killing her? He looked up at me, and evidently saw the change in my face, for he said almost joyously, Ah, you believe now? I answered, Do not press me too hard all at once. I am willing to accept. How will you do this bloody work? I shall cut off her head, and fill her mouth with garlic, and I shall drive a stake through her body. It made me shudder to think of so mutilating the body of the woman whom I had loved, and yet the feeling was not so strong as I expected. I was, in fact, beginning to shudder at the presence of this being, this undead, as Van Helsing called it, and to loathe it. Is it possible that love is all subjective, or all objective? I waited a considerable time for Van Helsing to begin, but he stood as if wrapped in thought. Presently he closed the catch of his bag with a snap and said, I have been thinking, and I have made up my mind, as to what is best. If I did simply follow my inclining, I would do now at this moment what is to be done, but there are other things to follow, and things that are a thousand times more difficult, and that them we do not know. This is simple. She have yet no life taken, though that is of time, and to act now would be to take danger from her forever. But then we may have to want Arthur, and how shall we tell him of this? If you, who saw the wounds on Lucy's throat, and saw the wounds so similar on the child's at the hospital, if you, who saw the coffin empty last night, and full today with a woman, who have not changed only to be more rose and more beautiful in a whole week after she die. If you know of this and know of the white figure last night that brought the child to the churchyard, and yet of your own senses, you do not believe how, then, can I expect Arthur, who know none of those things, to believe. He doubted me when I took him from her kiss when she was dying, I know he has forgiven me because in some mistaken idea I have done things that prevent him say goodbye as he ought. And he may think that in some more mistaken idea this woman was buried alive, and that in most mistake of all we have killed her. He will then argue back, that is, that it is we mistaken ones that have killed her by our ideas, and so he will be much unhappy always. Yet he never can be sure, and that is the worst of all, and he will sometimes think that she, that she he loved was buried alive, and that will paint his dreams with horrors of what she must have suffered, and again he will think what we, what we may be right, and that his so beloved was, after all, an undead. No, I told him once. And since then I learn much. Now, since I know it is all true, a hundred thousand times more, 
Stewart's Diary, 28th of September. It is wonderful what a good night's sleep will do for one. Yesterday I was almost willing to accept Van Helsing's mon monstrous ideas, but now they seem to start out lurid before me as outrageous on common sense. I have no doubt that he believes it all. I wonder if his mind can have become in any way unhinged. Surely there must be some rational explanation of all these mysterious things. Is it possible that the professor can have done it himself? He is so abnormally clever that if he went off his head, he would carry out his intent with regard to some fixed idea in a wonderful way. I am loath to think it, and indeed it would be almost as great a marvel as the other to find that Van Helsing was mad. But anyhow, I shall watch him carefully. I may get some light on the mystery. 29th of September, morning. Last night, a little before ten o'clock, Arthur and Quincy came into Van Helsing's room. He told us all that he wanted us to do, but especially addressing himself to Arthur, as if all our wills were centered in his. He began by saying that we hoped, he hoped we would all come with him too, for, he said, there is a grave duty to be done there. You were doubtless surprised at my letter. This query was directly addressed to Lord Galdalming. I was. It rather upset me for a bit. There has been so much trouble around my house of late that I could do without any more. I have been curious, too, as to what you mean. Quincy and I talked it over, but the more we talked, the more puzzled we got. Till now, I can say for myself that I am about up a tree as to any meaning about anything. Me too, said Quincy Morris, laconically. Oh, said the professor, then you are nearer the beginning, both of you, than friend John near who has to go a long way back before he can even get so far as to begin. It was evident that he recognized my return to my old doubting frame of mind without my saying a word. Then, turning to the other two, he said with intense gravity, I want your permission to do what I think good this night. It is, I know, much to ask, and when you know what it is, I propose to do you will know, and only then, how much. Therefore, may I ask that you promise me in the dark, so that afterwards, though you may be angry with me for a time, I must not disguise from myself the possibility that such may be. You shall not blame yourselves for anything. That's frank anyhow, broke in Quincy. I'll answer for the professor. I don't quite see his drift, but I swear he's honest, and that's good enough for me. I thank you, sir, said Van Helsing proudly. I have done myself the honor of counting you one trusting friend, and such endorsement is dear to me. He held out a hand, which Quincy took. Then Arthur spoke out. Dr. Van Helsing, I don't quite like to buy a pig in a poke as they say in Scotland, and if it be anything in which my honor as a gentleman or my faith as a Christian is concerned, 
I cannot make such a promise. If you can assure me that which you intend does not violate either of, either of these two, then I give my consent at once, though for the life of me I cannot understand what you are driving at. I accept your limitation, said Van Helsing, and all I ask of you is that you feel it necessary to condemn any act of mine. You will first consider it well and be satisfied that it does not violate your reservations. Agreed, said Arthur. That is only fair, and now that the parlays are over, may I ask, what is it we are to do? I want you to come with me and to come in secret to the churchyard at Kingstead. Arthur's face fell as he said in an amazed sort of way, Where poor Lucy is buried? The professor bowed. Arthur went on. And when there? To enter the tomb. Arthur stood up. Professor, you are in earnest, or is it some monstrous joke? Pardon me, I see that you are in earnest. He sat down again. But I could see that he sat firmly and proudly as one who is on his dignity. There was silence until he asked again, and when in the tomb, to open the coffin. This is too much, he said, angrily rising again. I am willing to be patient in all things that are reasonable. But in this, this desecration of the grave, of one who, he fairly choked with indignation, the professor looked pityingly at him. If I could spare you one pang, my poor, poor friend, he said, God knows I would, but this night our feet must tread in thorny paths, or later and forever the feet you love must walk in paths of flame. Arthur looked up with set white face and said, Take care, sir, take care. Would it not be well to hear what I have to say, said Van Helsing? and then you will at least know the limit of my purpose. Shall I go on? That's fair enough, broke in Morris. After a pause, Van Helsing went on, evidently with an effort. Miss Lucy is dead, is it not so? Yes, then there can be no wrong to, to her. But if she be not dead... Arthur jumped to his feet, Good God, he cried, what do you mean? Has there been any mistake? Has she been buried alive? He groaned in an anguish that not even hope could soften. I did not say she was alive, my child. I did not think it. I go no further than to say that she might be undead. Undead, not alive, what do you mean? Is this all a nightmare, or what is it? There are mysteries which men can only guess at which age by age they may solve only in part. Believe me, we are now on the verge of one. But I have not done. May I cut off the head of dead Miss Lucy? Heavens and earth, no, cried Arthur in a storm of passion. Not for the wide world I will consent to any mutilation of her dead body. Dr. Van Helsing, you try me too far. What have I done to you that you should torture me so? What did that poor sweet girl do that you should want to cast such a dishonor on her grave? Are you mad? That 
the door. 
Miss Lucy in that coffin. It was. The professor turned to the rest, saying, You hear, and yet there is one who does not believe me with me. He took a screwdriver and again took off the lid of the coffin. Arthur looked on, very pale but silent. When the lid was removed, he stepped forward. He evidently did not know that there was a leaden coffin, or at any rate, had not thought of it. When he saw the rent in the lead, the blood rushed to his face for an instant, but as quickly fell away again so that he remained of a ghastly whiteness. He was still silent. Van Helsing forced back the leaden flange, and we all looked in and recoiled. The coffin was empty. For several minutes, no one spoke a word. The silence was broken by Quincy Morris. Professor, I answered for you. Your word is all I want. I wouldn't ask such a thing ordinarily. I wouldn't so dishonor you as to imply a doubt, but this is a mystery that goes beyond any honor or dishonor. Is this your doing? I swear to you by all that I hold sacred that I have not removed nor touched her. What happened was this. Two nights ago, my friend Seward and I came here with good purpose, believe me. I opened that coffin, which was then sealed up, and we found it as now empty. We then waited, and saw something white come through the trees. The next day we come here in the daytime, and she lay there. Did she not, friend John? Yes. That night we were just in time. One more so small child was missing, and we find it, thank God, unarmed amongst the graves. Yesterday I came here before sundown, for at sundown the undead can move. I waited here all the night till the sun rose, but I saw nothing. It was most probable that it was because I had laid over the clamps of those doors garlic, which the undead cannot bear, and other things which they shun. Last night there was no exodus, so tonight before the sundown I took away my garlic and other things. So it is we find this coffin empty. But bear with me. So far there is much that is strange. Wait you with me outside, unseen and unheard, and things much stranger are yet to be. So, here he shut the dark side, slide of his lantern. Now to the outside. He opened the door, and we filed out, he coming last and locking the door behind him. Oh, but it seemed fresh and pure in the night air after the terror of that vault. How sweet it was to see the clouds race by, and the passing gleams of the moonlight between the scudding clouds crossing and passing, like the gladness and sorrow of a man's life. How sweet it was to breathe the fresh air that had no taint of death and decay. How humanizing to see the red lighting of the sky beyond the hill and to hear far away the muffled roar that marks the life of a great city. Each in his own way was solemn and overcome. Arthur was silent, and was, I could see, striving to grasp the purpose and the inner meaning of the mystery. I was myself tolerably patient, and half inclined again to throw aside doubt and to accept Van Helsing's conclusions. Quincy Morris was 
light still held. My own heart grew cold as ice, and I could hear the gasp of Arthur as we recognized the features of Lucy Westenra. Lucy Westenra, but yet how changed. The sweetness was turned to adamantine, heartless cruelty, and the purity to voluptuous wantonness. Van Helsing stepped out, and, obedient to his gesture, we all advanced too, the four of us, ranged in a line before the door of the tomb. Van Helsing raised his lantern and drew the slide. By the concentrated light that fell on Lucy's face, as we could see that the lips were crimson with fresh blood, and that the stream had trickled over her chin and stained the purity of her lawn death robe. We shuddered with horror. I could see by the tremulous light that even Van Helsing's iron nerve had failed. Arthur was next to me, and if I had not seized his arm and held him up, he would have fallen. When Lucy... I call the thing that was before us Lucy, because it bore her shape, saw us. She drew back with an angry snarl, such as a cat gives when taken unawares. Then her eyes ranged over us. Lucy's eyes in form and color, but Lucy's eyes unclean and full of hellfire, instead of the pure, gentle orbs we knew. At that moment, the remnant of my love passed into hate and loathing. Had she then to be killed, I could have done it with savage delight. As she looked, her eyes blazed with unholy light, and the face became wreathed with a voluptuous smile. Oh, God, how it made me shudder to see it. With a careless motion, she flung to the ground, callous as a devil, the child that up to now she had clutched strength strenuously to her breast, growling over it as a dog growls over a bone. The child gave a sharp cry and lay there moaning. There was a cold-bloodedness in the act which wrung a groan from Arthur. When she advanced to him with outstretched arms and a wanton smile, he fell back and hid his face in his hands. She still advanced, however, and with a languorous, voluptuous grace said, Come to me, Arthur. Leave these others and come to me. My arms are hungry for you. Come and we can rest together. Come, my husband, come. There was something diabolically sweet in her tones, something of the tingling of glass when struck, which rang through the brains even of us who heard the words addressed to another. As for Arthur, he seemed under a spell, moving his hands from his face, he opened wide his arms. She was leaping for them, when Van Helsing sprang forward and held between them his little golden crucifix. She recoiled from it, and, with a suddenly distorted face, full of rage, dashed past him as if to enter the tomb. When within a foot or two of the door, however, she stopped as if arrested by some irresistible force. Then she turned and her face was shown in the clear burst of moonlight and by the lamp, which had now no quiver from then, Helsing's iron nerves. Never did I see such baffled malice on a face, and, I, and never, I trust, 
shall such ever be seen again by mortal eyes. The beautiful color became livid. The eyes seemed to throw out sparks of hellfire. The brows were wrinkled as though the folds of the flesh were the coils of Medusa's snakes, and the lovely, blood-stained mouth grew to an open square, as in the passion masks of the Greeks and Japanese. If ever a face meant death, if looks could kill, we saw it at that moment. And so for a full half a minute, which seemed an eternity, she remained between the lifted crucifix and the sacred closing of her means of entry. Van Helsing broke the silence by asking Arthur, Answer me, O oh my friend, am I to proceed in my work? Arthur threw himself on his knees and hid his face in his hands as he answered, Do as you will, friend, do as you will. There can be no horror like this ever any more. As he groaned in spirit, Quincy and I simultaneously moved towards him and took his arms. We could hear the click of the closing lantern as Van Helsing held it down, coming close to the tomb. He began to remove the chunks of some of the sacred emblem which he had placed there. We all looked on in horrified amazement as we saw, when he stood back, the woman with a corporeal body as real at the moment as our own, pass in through the interstice where the scarce where scarce a knife blade could have gone. We all felt a glad sense of relief when we saw the professor calmly restoring the strings of putty to the edges of the door. When this was done, he lifted the child and said, Come now, my friends, we can do no more till tomorrow. There is a funeral at noon, so here we shall all come before long after that. The friends of the dead will all be gone by two, and when the sexton lock the gate, we shall remain. Then there is more to do like this of tonight. As for this little one, he is not much harm, and by tomorrow night he shall be well. We shall leave him where the police will find him, as on the other night, and then to home. Coming close to Arthur, he said, My friend Arthur, you have had sore trial, but after, when you look back, you will see how it was necessary. You are now in the bitter waters, my child. By this time tomorrow you will, please God, have passed them, and have drunk of the sweet waters, so do not mourn over much. Till then I shall not ask you to forgive me. Arthur and Quincy came home with me, and we tried to cheer each other on the way. We had left the child in safety, and were tired, so we all slept with more or less reality of sleep. 29th of September, night. A little before twelve o'clock, we three, Arthur, Quincy, Morris, and myself, called for the professor. It was odd to notice that by common consent we had all put on black clothes. Of course, Arthur wore black, for he was in deep mourning, but the rest of us wore it by instinct. We got to the churchyard by half-past one and strolled about, keeping out of official observation so that when the gravediggers had completed their task, and the sexton, under the belief that everyone had gone,
eyes all to ourselves. Van Helsing, instead of his little black bag, had with him a long leather one, something like a cricketing bag. It was manifestly of fair weight. When we were alone and had heard the last of the footsteps die out up the road, we silently, and as if by ordered intention, followed the professor to the tomb. He unlocked the door, and we entered, closing it behind us. Then he took from his bag the lantern, which he lit, and also two wax candles, which, when lighted, he stuck by melting their own ends on other coffins, so that they might give light sufficient to work by. When he again lifted the lid off Lucy's coffin, we all looked, Arthur trembling like an aspen, and saw that the body lay there in all its death beauty. But there was no love in my own heart, nothing but loathing for the foul thing which had taken Lucy's shape without her soul. I could see. Even Arthur's face grew hard as he looked. Presently, he said to Van Helsing, is this really Lucy's body, or only a demon in her shape? It is her body, and yet not it. But wait a while, and you shall see her as she was and is. She seemed like a nightmare of Lucy as she lay there, the pointed teeth, the blood-stained voluptuous mouth, which it made one shudder to see. The whole carnal and unspiritual appearance seeming like a devilish mockery of Lucy's sweet purity. Van Helsing, with his usual methodicalness, began taking the various contents from his bag and placing them ready for use. First, he took out a soldering iron and some plumbing solder, and then a small oil lamp, which gave out when lit in a corner of the tomb, gas which burned a fierce heat, with a blue flame, then his operating knives, which he placed to hand, and last a round wooden stake, some two and a half or three inches thick, and about three feet long. One end of it was hardened by jarring in the fire, and was sharpened to a fine point. With this stake came a heavy hammer, such as in households it is used in the coal cellar for breaking the lumps. To me, a doctor's preparations for work of any kind are stimulating and bracing, but the effect of these things on both Arthur and Quincy was to cause them a sort of consternation. They both, however, kept their courage and remained silent and quiet. When all was ready, Van Helsing said, Before we do anything, let me tell you this. It is out of the lore and experience of the ancients and all of those who have studied the powers of the undead. When they become such, there comes with this change, the curse of immortality. They cannot die, but must go on age after age, adding new victims and multiplying the evils of the world. For all that die from the preying of the undead become themselves undead and prey on their kind. And so the circle goes on, ever widening, like as the ripples from a stone thrown in the water. Friend Arthur, if you had met that kiss 
which you know of before poor Lucy die, or again, last night when you opened your arms to her, you would in time, when you had died, have become Nosferatu, as they call it in Eastern Europe, and would all time make more of those undeads, so that, that so have fill us with horror. The career of this so unhappy dear lady is but just begun. Those children whose blood she suck are not as yet so much the worse, but if she live on, the undead, more and more they lose their blood, and by her power over them they come to her, and so she draw their blood with that so wicked mouth. But if she die in truth, then all cease, the tiny wounds of the throats disappear, and they go back to their plays, unknowing ever of what has been. But of the most blessed of all, when this now undead be made to rest as true dead, then the soul of the poor lady whom we love shall again be free. Instead of working wickedness by night, and growing more debased in the assimilation of it by day, she shall take her place with the other angels, so that, my friend, it will be blessed hand for her that she shall strike the blow that sets her free. To this I am willing, but is there none amongst us who has a better right? Will it be no joy to think of hereafter in the silence of night, when sleep is not? It was my hand that sent her to the stars. It was the hand of him that loved her best, the hand that of all she would herself have chosen, had it been her to choose. Tell me if there be such a one amongst us. We all looked at Arthur. He saw, too, what we all did, the infinite kindness which suggested that his should be the hand which would restore Lucy to us as a holy and not an unholy memory. He stepped forward and said bravely, though his hand trembled and his face was as pale as snow, My true friend, from the bottom of my broken heart, I thank you. Tell me what I am to do, and I shall not falter. Van Helsing laid a hand on his shoulder and said, Brave lad, moment's courage, and it is done. This stake must be driven through her. It will be a fearful ordeal. Be not deceived in that, but it will be only a short time, and you will then rejoice more than your pain was great. From this grim tomb you will emerge as though you tread on air, but you must not falter when once you have begun. Only think that we, your true friends, are round you that we pray for you all the time. Go on, said Arthur hoarsely, tell me what I am to do. Take this stake in your left hand, ready to place the point over the heart, and the hammer in your right. Then, when we begin our prayer for the dead, I shall read him. I have here the book, and the others shall follow. Strike in God's name, that so all may be well with the dead that we love and let the undead pass away. Arthur took the stake and the hammer, and when once his mind was set on action, his hands never trembled, nor even quivered. Then Elsing opened his missile, and began to read, and Quincy and I followed as well as we could. Arthur placed the point over the
shook and quivered and twisted in wild contortions. The sharp white teeth jammed together till the lips were cut, and the mouth was smeared with a crimson foam. But Arthur never faltered. He looked like a figure of Thor as was untrembling arm rose and fell, driving deeper and deeper the mercy-bearing stake, whilst the blood from the pierced heart welled and spurted up around it. His face was set, and high duty seemed to shine through it. The sight of it gave us courage, so that our voices seemed to ring through the little vault. And then the writhing and quivering of the body became less, and the teeth ceased to champ, and the face to quiver. Finally it lay still. The terrible task was over. The hammer fell from Arthur's hand. He reeled and would have fallen had we not caught him. The great drops of sweat sprang out on his forehead, and his breath came in broken gasps. It had indeed been an awful strain on him, and he, had he not been forced to his task by more than human considerations, he could never have gone through with it. For a few minutes, we were so taken up with him that we did not look towards the coffin. When we did, however, a murmur of startled surprise ran from one to the other of us. We gazed so eagerly that Arthur rose, for he had been seated on the ground, and came and looked too, and then a glad, strange light broke over his face, and dispelled altogether the gloom of horror that lay upon it. There, in the coffin, lay no longer the foul thing that we had so dreaded and grown to hate that the work of her destruction was yielded as a privilege to the one best entitled to it. But Lucy, as we had seen her in her life, with her face of unequaled sweetness and purity, true that they were there, as we had seen them in life. The traces of care and pain and waste, but these were all dear to us, for they marked our truth to what we knew. One and all, we felt that the holy calm that lay like sunshine over the wasted face and form was only an earthly token and symbol of the calm that was to reign forever. Van Helsing came and laid his hand on Arthur's shoulder and said to him, And now, Arthur, my friend, dear lad, am I not forgiven? The reaction of the terrible strain came as he took the old man man's hand in his, and raising it to his lips, pressed it and said, Forgiven, God bless you, that you have given my dear one her soul again, and me peace. He put his hands on the professor's shoulder, and laying his head on his breast, cried for a while silently, whilst we stood unmoving. When he raised his head, Van Helsing said to him, And now, my child, you may kiss her kiss her dead lips, if you will, as she would have you too, if for her to choose, for she is not a grinning devil now, not any more a foul thing for all eternity. No longer she is the devil's undead, she is God's true dead, whose soul is with him. Arthur bent and kissed her, and then we sent him and Quincy out of the tomb. The professor and I saw the top off a stake leaving the point of it in the body. 
officer locked the door. He gave the key to Arthur. Outside, the air was sweet. The sun shone, and the birds sang, and it seemed as if all nature were tuned to a different pitch. There was gladness and mirth and peace everywhere, for we were at rest ourselves on one account, and we were glad, though it was with a tempered joy. Before we moved away, Van Helsing said, Now, my friends, one step of our work is done, one the most harrowing to ourselves, but there remains a greater task, to find out the author of all this our sorrow, and to stamp him out. I have clues which we can follow, but it is a long task, and a difficult, and there is danger in it, and pain. Shall you not all help me? We have learned to believe, all of us. Is it not so? And since so, do we not see our duty? Yes, and do we not promise to go on to the bitter end? Each in turn, we took his hand, and the promise was made. Then, said the professor as we moved off, Two nights hence, you shall meet with me and dine together at seven of the clock with friend John. I shall entreat two others, two that you know, not as yet, and I shall be ready to work, to all our work and our plans unfold. Friend John, you come with me home, for I have much to consult about, and you can help me. Tonight I leave for Amsterdam, but shall return tomorrow night, and then begins our great quest. But first, I shall have much to say, so that you may know what is to do and to dread. Then our promise shall be made to each other anew, for there is a terrible task before us, and once our feet are on the plowshare, we must not draw back. Listening to the Book Whisperer. Listen in tomorrow night for chapters 17 to 20. Good night. Mm-hmm.